What do you think is the most important question that humans can ask? Are we alone? That to me is the most important question. If we're not alone, then somebody else might have answers to other, let's say, less or more immediate existential uh, questions, right? That, you know, what, what can we do about this? What can we do about that? Or, you know, are there other dimensions? You could list a thousand questions and, you know, if they would be willing to give us the answers. I mean, I've said this before. I think we're just a bunch of angry, angry apes. I don't think we're ready for uh, some of the answers yet. And, you know, it's like you don't tell your children certain things until they're mature enough. And we have pretty much proven that we're still not mature enough yet. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today, we have Gary Nolan on the show. Gary is a professor at Stanford of pathology. Uh, he studies biology and microbiology. Um, so he has a real background in medicine and in, in, in anything that you think of from a doctor's standpoint, but he has really gone out on a limb and incorporated um, extraterrestrial craft. And he's been doing uh, research on the materials themselves and really just like feeding that inner monologue of what are we here for? What are we? And trying to get those answers. So we did talk about that, of course. And we also talked about the human body and what it is and what is DNA and how does the body work and what is its interaction with this world? How did it come about? Where is it going? And at what levels does it exist? And so we talked also about the theories of the universe, of holographic universe, simulation theory, um, the multiverse. So this is just this is the kind of conversation like that I just want to have all day, every day where we are not sure about anything. And he makes that very clear uh, that these are all ifs. These are all just ideas and concepts and asking questions. But it's but he also had a great thought that maybe the question is anchoring the answer in the universe. And so he explains what he means by that. So enjoy today's deeply fascinating episode. Um, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Um, I'd love to hear what you have to say in the comments. Let's get out there. Let's think outside the box. Uh, I can't wait to read them. You've got like, you know, a doctor biology brain, but then you also have this other new interesting side of more science and data and aliens and UFOs, which is of course fascinating. So how, how did that end up happening? I such a, it feels like there's a lot of similarities, but it is such a transition to go from biology, microbiology, and being in the lab like that to, you know, testing UFO materials. Well, I mean, I, if you are a biologist and I have both an undergrad in genetics uh, at Cornell, and then I got my PhD at Stanford in the department of genetics, so, you know, you're naturally driven to think about evolution and where did we come from, right? And so when you start thinking about the beginnings of life on this planet, if you do any amount of reading, you come across the theory of panspermia, right? And so panspermia basically meaning the distribution of life uh, across the universe by an initial seeding that happened somewhere and then it spread as you know life does like mold 
<laughs> you know, it spreads. Um, and so uh, there's lots of ideas about this. Uh, people don't have a sense of what life can do. Um, and if you look at, uh, for instance, where did all of the material on this planet come from? The rocks, the metals, et cetera. It came from an exploding star that became a gas, which then eventually coalesced into a, you know, into a sun and planets. So that much time can go by between one star's existence and its birth of another star eventually. Um, but during that event, you could imagine the explosion sending rocks and pieces of that original solar system elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there were spores or things on that, they could go along for the ride. And so that's the concept of panspermia, that uh, at the very least, you could imagine microbial life spreading and then seeding life elsewhere. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul, to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Um, now, you know, then there's a different kind of panspermia notion that, you know, if a uh, intelligent race was uh, ever, you know, happened, you know, several billions of years ago, it has more than enough time to spread across nearly the entire universe, even just at the speed of light, right? Um, and so, you know, it's just, it, it, it's not many steps to thinking about that. And especially for someone like me, I was interested in science fiction as a kid. And so all of these concepts were already there, for me at least. I mean, as fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, when you as a scientist come across instances of a question you might ask, rather than let's say being a member of the lay public where it remains a question, you can be sure of what you think the answer is. But, you know, as a scientist, I have the means uh, in my laboratory to actually study it, to answer the question. And that's always how I've been. I've always been about, okay, well, I'm interested in this part of biology. How do I do it? Okay, this is what I would need to do to prove or disprove this. And so I just bring the same ethic, the same approach to the, you know, the alien problem or the uh, non-human intelligence problem uh, in that, you know, it's, there's a lot of, uh, let's say, what we would call in the sciences preliminary data, right? There's a lot of preliminary data that suggests many different hypotheses. So some of those hypotheses are testable. Uh, so let's do it. So that's how I came to it.
Okay. So amazing. And I have a lot of those same questions. So you talked about, you know, microbial life kind of spreading, right? It could be like a, like a mold, but it just little spores and little bits could be spread out. What is that? When you say that microbial, what is, what is it actually? So it would be um, the spores of bacteria, for instance, right? So there's plenty of spores on earth uh, of bacteria that can survive space and hard radiation, mm. right? Bacillus, there's a number of bacillus strains that have this ability. So, you know, it's if it's, you know, frozen and in vacuum and it could last an awful long time. And we already have instances of bacteria and other living things, you know, surviving hundreds of thousands of years and then being resurrected. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's not a big difference between a hundred thousand years and say 10 million or even a billion years, the time that it might take to go from one place to another. Um, you know, I mean, imagine, uh, a large chunk of rock, like what Avi Loeb pointed out the Uma Uma event, right. Uh, going from one solar system to another, you know, it just takes a little bit of that over time. Uh, to spread out into many different places uh, around a galaxy or even around, you know, the universe, let's say. Yeah, but there's some interesting evidence for it. Uh, and and uh, one of those bits of evidence is uh, what's called the Moore's Law of uh, Genetic Complexity. You've all heard of Moore's Law for semiconductors. It's a, you know, it's a made-up law. But the idea is that for whatever reason, um, every, I don't know what it is, 10 years or five years, whatever the number is, uh, the complexity of computer chips doubles. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit somniumwine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate please drink responsibly. Right. And the speed doubles. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're always, as you'll see, if you read in the, in computer magazines, there's this, have we reached the end of Moore's law? Mm. You know, and then somebody discovers quantum computers. Right. Uh, and so then, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's more just an observation of what happens. So somebody thought to look at the complexity of DNA and the regulatory uh, regions of DNA that are in many ways like a computer, right? These are the areas upstream of the uh, regions of the genes that encode the proteins, mm -hmm. the things that mm -hmm. you know we are, and the enzymes that make us, et cetera. There are these regulatory regions, which if you're a computer scientist, you would look at and you would think of as the, as the actual code mm -hmm. um, of, what's, of what is, of how a person is made. Um, okay, and now the complexity of that in, let's say, simple bacteria, it's, it's, it's extremely simple, right? They're, they don't have the kind of regulatory phenomenon that, that we have. Okay. Um, but if you think of bacteria as an ancient uh, example of what our great-great-great-great-grandparents might look like, right? And then you look and you go up the chain of um, evolution from bacteria to eukaryotes to multicellular things, et cetera, up the chain. And you call those, and you call that evolution. Right. right? 
that's all we really have to see right now. Um, and then you look at, and then you basically say, well, bacteria evolved, I don't know, uh, 2 billion years ago, whatever the number is. These are the ones, this, so you, you create that timeline and then you give some measure of complexity. It turns out that the complexity uh, of when things actually started was about 10 billion years ago. Billion or million? Billion, billion, billion. billion. Okay, but how long has Earth been around? Four billion years. Four billion. Exactly. Right? Okay, so there's a six billion year gap. Uh-huh. Um, so basically, there's two answers to that. The first answer is it actually evolved that long ago. Right. Right, six billion years ago. Or something about evolution took a fast leap up and then became the straight line. Yeah, I'm really curious right. about that up part. So so it, it's either... If, if life on Earth happened and, uh, and instantiated only 4 billion years ago, mm-hmm. fast leap up and then became this linear curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's perfectly possible. Um, or you could say it started somewhere else and just traveled here. Right. Okay. And so um, that's the first one. I find that interesting. Uh, the second one is a paper, and, and that, that actually is a paper. And then uh, peer-reviewed. And there's another peer-reviewed paper called The Wow Signal in the Genetic Code by a couple of mathematicians from, I think, Uzbekistan. Hmm. Uh, And I don't pretend to understand the math, and I'm sure there's some statisticians that would argue with it, but their concept was interesting. Hmm. The the actual, what we call the genetic code, the the, uh, transfer RNAs that basically say, you know, a proline goes here, a leucine goes there that allow for the um, proteins to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, they are so well organized mm-hmm. in terms of the structure of the of who codes for what um, that it looks like it was designed. Right. And then they go through some mathematical models of why it had to have been designed. And. You know, there's some caveats that I'll mention at the end here. Uh, that uh, the chance of it not having been designed is like one in several hundred trillion. Right. Right. And th- what they're saying is the wow message. So you've heard of this thing called the wow message that when somebody first thought that they heard a radio signal from another civilization, they said, wow, they wrote wow on it. And that became the wow signal. <laughs> so they said, look, the signal is actually in our DNA. The fact that the that DNA was planned and organized is right there in front of us. That's the wow signal. Huh. Now, you know, there's um, there's a guy who wrote uh, a book called The Selfish Gene, uh, and um, his name is Richard Dawkins, a famous profess- genetics professor from England, who basically says, look, that's rubbish not this wow signal itself, but, you know, the whole notion of divine intervention or planned genetics that, you know, the creationists, it's rubbish because there are other mathematical principles that you can throw at this that say that you don't need that, you know, and, and I think this guy is fantastic, right? So his is a fantastic counter argument to the wow signal, 
but it isn't the disproof, right? Saying, saying that there is an alternate explanation isn't proof of the alternate explanation, right? It's like, that's the, it's, so it's still in limbo, right? As to what it, whether this wow signal is true or not. Even if it's not true, the fact that the DNA code is so organized in and of itself is beautiful. I mean, as a scientist, I, I, I appreciate the, the beauty of that, right? They, they, it's so well organized. And I mean, but we can look at any ecosystem and say it's so well organized, somebody must have invented it. No, no, you don't have to invent it. Richard Dawkins shows how things can evolve. So what about, I mean, this makes me start thinking about fractals and energy and patterns and recurring patterns in nature. And I mean, do you, what about that? What about just patterns of energy showing up on a micro and a macro level? Mm -hmm. What about that? Well, I mean, yeah. So the universe is organized with a pattern. Right. If you look right down at the laws that we think are running the universe, all of these particles with features and capabilities uh, and how they will interact um, that allow for us. Basically, it says that embedded in the structure of the universe is the capability to produce us. Now, the question, the open question is, did somebody create the universe so that something like us could occur? Mm -hmm. Right. Or is it just chance and we're lucky? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So there's this concept in the multiverse ideas of that the in other universes, the laws of physics might be different. Right. That if you take the various what we call constants of physics, Planck constant, et cetera, as all these Mm -hmm. various numbers and you change them only slightly. uh, Any one of them only slightly suddenly you don't have a universe like ours that could even have protons, right? That it would basically, you you wouldn't get anything. It would just remain a big mist mm-hmm. that could ever coalesce into anything. So there's this notion of what's called the anthropic, I think it's called the anthropic principle, that we only think of ourselves as the only universe that is because the laws are such that we can see ourselves. Right. But in the other universes, no one could become. I mean, if you were to go there, you would basically just explode. <laughs> you, know, you would just dissipate into nothing. Right, right. Right. So, so embedded in the laws of the universe are the rules that allow for evolution. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't mean that they were the universe was created for that. It's just that retrospectively, it is that. There's a science fiction book that I always remember a story um, about this thing that evolved in an ocean on another planet. And it, and, the, and the, it began with, it could not remember, but could deduce its origins, right? So we can't remember our origins, but we can deduce them. Sure. We can deduce the kinds of things that must have happened. Mm-hmm. And then we can even go beyond that now, as I'm saying about the structure of the universe, to say that the structure of the universe allows for atoms, it allows for molecules, those molecules can come together and if they can reproduce they will that's the essence of the selfish gene from richard dawkins is that if given resources and you can reproduce you will find a way to reproduce Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so you don't need to imagine a god right that created you right 
but you know, it's it, and and he goes through a lot of very good <clears throat> arguments about it. But but so that's the kind of way that I I think of it. That it says that if we came from a panspermic event, I'm not sure that's a word, but just made it up. Uh, then that means that there are other potentially seeded planets elsewhere. Must that also could have right. you know created civilizations. Now, and then if you go as far as saying that um, there are other universes. Exactly. Which have, let's say, different timelines. Once you propose that another universe can happen and it might have a different timeline than ours. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, it, the, the, it, there's no such thing as, the, as a common timeline at that point. You're independent. You can come from any point in another universe's timeline. And if you are sufficiently advanced, you might have learned ways to jump between universes. Fascinating. Right? What what do you think is the most likely theory of the universe? The multiverse, simulation theory, holographic? You know, I I think the holographic and simulation theory, I mean, I'm closer to the holographic idea because we are a a low dimensional projection of something of a higher dimension. We know that other dimensions exist. That doesn't mean other dimensions, meaning other realities. It means that the four dimensions that we think of are a subset of something more complex. Mm-hmm. Because our understanding of how the physical particles operate uh, in many of the theories requires additional concepts of other dimensions. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't mean that other things live there, but maybe they do. I don't know. But um, so. Is more aligned with the holographic notion. The idea of a simulation, I mean, uh, that implies, I mean, very often what, what that brings to mind is the notion that somebody's sitting behind a computer terminal somewhere running us, uh, like a Sims game. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a little too simplistic, obviously, but you know, if you created the universe with all of these rules, like it looks like a giant computer program, which it does, fine, call it a simulation. I don't care. You know, I mean, a, a simulation implies that it's not real. I mean, that we exist only in somebody else's computer. But that doesn't matter to me. As far as I'm concerned, I'm real. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't change the way you live your life. It's still about me and unless they're going to reach in and change the code halfway through because they decide we're buggy or we're caught in a loop, you know? Okay. I mean, looping is a thing. I mean, people yeah. do loop, you loop on patterns with people, patterns with how you operate. I mean, that yeah. does happen. And I, I do wonder if there's that possibility where I was just having this conversation the other day that if we were to, I don't know, shift dimensions, ascend new earth, whatever the concept or theory is, would you even know? No, I agree. I mean, I, I was thinking about something like this the other day, you know, I was watching some, uh, you know, uh, history channel or something, just flipping through late at night about your know, reincarnation, mm-hmm. the concept of reincarnations and, mm-hmm. you know, okay. If, if we reincarnate infinitely in some ways, it almost sounds depressing. <laughs> sort of like I, I'm kind of like, I'm done. How many people say that, right? They're like, no, 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 this is my last human trip, promise. (laughs) This is, I'm done. You know, but if that's just the way of things, but if we get erased each time, well, then it doesn't matter. 
it's not like you're a, there's, the, there's a memory of all of the dramas that you went on before. Um, so, you know, I don't, I'm not, I, I'm not quite sure about what it is, but I mean, I'm obviously the older you get, the more you start to think about what's, what's next. Mm -hmm. I'm actually excited one way or the other. Right. I mean, whether it's, you know, death and it's the end, well, okay, who cares? It's the end. Uh, or if it's some change, fine, I'm ready for it. I've said that, um, I really want to figure out what the truth and the nature of reality. That's my biggest question that I have in my life is what is the true nature of this reality that we live in? And I said, I'm going to have to die to find out. I'm just not ready. You know, yeah. like this, this can be really fun and really interesting here in the meantime. I mean, I would hope, and this is perhaps narcissistic, that having achieved a level of self-introspection uh, about that, that that is an indication that you're you know, ready for a next level, right? That if you're oblivious to it, you're no different than, you know, an animal, right? I'm not disparaging animals, but, you know, that they're, if they're not conscious of it, then you're not ready for that next level. Um, I don't know. Well, consciousness, you said the word, I mean, such an interesting concept and theory and so many people wondering about the nature of it. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? On Because that, that to me, <clears throat> when I think about the universe and I think about mm. patterns of things and, and how it might all really be unfolding, there's this unique element of consciousness of being aware of the thoughts we're having, being aware of these things. And it's like, what is that unique strain, unique like pathway of information that comes to us? Um, that makes it feel less mechanical and less like data. It feels, mm -hmm. there's a feel to it. So what, what are your thoughts on, on consciousness at this point? Well, if you, so if you are a brain scientist, you think that consciousness is just the pattern of electrical signals between neurons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe. Uh, but if we go back to that notion of there's like a, a complex structure to the universe of all of these particles interacting fields, et cetera. Um, okay. Well, somehow whatever our consciousness is, whether you're a materialist, like a neurosurgeon or you're a, you know, a spiritualist, doesn't matter. Your consciousness still, still sits somewhere in that space time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just the neuro, the neuro, the neurologist would think of it as, your brain organizes the space time to create consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's still sitting in that ether, mm -hmm. right? A spiritualist just says, well, maybe it sits outside the ether and reaches in with like puppet strings and manipulates the, you know, the, the neurons and that there's some interface that we don't yet understand right. that allows thing which is sitting outside to influence the materials in this universe. So, it, this would be a perfect example of where does consciousness sit? Well, maybe somewhere in those extra dimensions, or at the very least, it uses some of those extra dimensions. Yeah, that's one way of thinking about it. You know, I'm not again. I, I'll say this, and there's some idiot on Twit on Twitter who will pick apart my words and make it sound like I said something that I didn't. Right? There's one person in particular who's just really annoying. Well, they yeah. have a sad life. I don't know who they are, but they have a sad life. If all they I don't understand spend their time them, picking just, apart your brilliance. 
I find it exciting to think about. I mean, they must be the most boring person at a party, Jason. <laughs> um, you know who I'm talking about. I won't say his last name. <laughs> it, it, but it, it rhymes with Velveeta. <laughs> Cold Velveeta. Um, so, you know, it's... Uh, so consciousness then is something interesting in that no matter how you postulate it, materialism or spiritual, it, it does sit in space-time somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, the open question is, is it independent of the body, mm-hmm. right? Does it, you know, once created, is it now a pattern uh-huh. that can exist forever, right? Um, and there's actually, I've used this example before. One second, I'm going to step away and get the book. Um, and I would recommend anybody who's interested in it. Uh, it's just a treatise. You can cool. download it off of the internet. Um, but he uh, proposes a physics, again, uh, none of which I can truly understand. But, you know, it's yeah, physicists argue with each other all the time. It's the nature um, of the job of trying to prove things out is arguing. <laughs> and so what he basically says is that, I'll sh- again, show this one picture, um, that picture. Okay. And it's a, it's a drawing of um, complexities of reality. Okay. And um, how these complexities of reality as organized by biological organisms can create a structure, our brain. Mm-hmm. That is sort of the birthplace of consciousness, but the math says, at least in his view of the world, the math says that once created, it doesn't need the structure anymore. Like a flower creates a seed, the seed doesn't require the flower anymore, the seed can go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a postulate. Sure. It's an interesting idea, Um, and it's backed by a lot of math that the physicists will argue about forever. You know, I see it at Stanford all the time when the physicists and the mathematicians get in a room together with with the computer scientists and, you know, just put them in a mud pit and let them have fun, right? I like to watch that. Let them wrestle. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, I mean, to me, that's an interesting idea um, that... There is a physics support for the notion that consciousness can exist independent of what created the consciousness in the first place. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so anyway, that's just to, to me, that's uh, that's exciting. Now, whether that consciousness goes on to another place and, you know, we can all read the books about, you know, the Monroe Institute, for instance, and, uh, you know, this notion that there's people have out of body experiences and sure. things. Have you uh, ever had one? I had one that I was, it was unlike anything else. Okay. Um, Would you be willing to share? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I shared some pretty crazy stuff. No, I, I remember uh, waking up and um, well, I became conscious and I was in the middle of nowhere, like stars. I look, look, I kind of, could see around and it was like stars. And I go, Oh my God, I'm in space. And I, Oh my God, how am I going to get home? 
because I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. Lost. And then there was like one star that was brighter than all of the others. And I said, oh, that must be my star. And then suddenly I just felt this rushing feeling. And I literally remember coming down through the trees, through the, through the roof, and then into me, and I woke up. No, could be just a dream. But it's the most unusual dream that I ever had that had a sense of reality. I mean, most dreams I forget. Yeah. Well, that sounds like maybe like an astral projection. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what it was, but I found it fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's, and it resonated and you have a story and you remember it. And that's yeah. the thing, like you said about dreams, you normally forget. So the fact that that registered in your body and in your mind in a different way, um, is unique. I think right. that those experiences are what make us ask more questions. Right. So if we were to talk about kind of back into like DNA a little bit and um, understanding that, I also am thinking about if energy can't be created, energy cannot be destroyed, it can only transform. Like, mm -hmm. what is that? And then I'm thinking a lot about like quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Mm -hmm. And so, like, DNA, if we're looking just at us, what is DNA and what, because we have this idea that DNA is our future, right? Like, oh, my mom had cancer, so I'm going to have cancer. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's just my map, you know, but explain what DNA really is and how it works. Uh, wow. Okay. Um, so, well, first of all, it's an information storage device. Your dog wants to, to he's got his, looks like he's got a, a a rope or something. Like, he's like, I understood until this part and now I don't get it. Um, so it's an information storage device. Uh, it's a, um, it's a story in motion. Like I said before, go, it, you know, you can trace it back, you know, at least 4 billion and perhaps more years and its complexity is increasing. And at a certain level of complexity, let's say it instantiated the ability to have consciousness and mm -hmm. to perceive the universe, mm -hmm. you know, those, all those space-time particles actually realizing that they are space-time particles. Okay. Right. Wind waveforms. Um, but underneath that is an architecture and the architecture is in the DNA, but it's also in the proteins that are bound to the DNA. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think of the genetic code as this simple three letter code. It's much more complicated than that. Um, and it's a dynamic computer that's constantly sensing the environment and changing accordingly. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it, it, it's a memory system because embedded in the DNA is the, is the memory of how you evolved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At least it's the, it's the solution to many um, challenges that the organism went through across evolutionary time. Okay. Right. It's you a, see that it, in DNA. Yeah. It, it's embedded in there, the solutions, right? So the solution to breathing oxygen, which is otherwise dangerous to many chemical reactions is to have antioxidants is to use the oxygen to power the body. Right. So, you know, the oxidative damage and oxygen will create output of energy. So what life did was it realized 
well, rather than let the energy burn me, I'll use it for work. I'll, I'll make it useful. Hmm. So that's a solution. So energy metabolism is a solution to, you know, the, the poisoning that oxygen can, can do to certain systems, right? Um, Photosynthesis is a solution to the damage of photons. Rather than letting them damage us, we'll use them to create matter. Not to create matter, but to basically, you know, bring uh, carbon dioxide and uh, um, energy together and create energy and oxygen. But once it created that, then the, you have to find a way to deal with the damage that oxygen can produce. And so, you know, so each step of the way, there were additional solutions that needed to be found through evolution. You also have to remember that for each individual, um, you have sort of a local memory solution. And in diversity is, uh, mm. is the solution for more potential problems because you never know what the next problem is going to be. Mm. So this notion that diversity in genetics is important uh, is key. I mean, you know, the, the, the problem of the potato famine was, you know, in Ireland back in the day, was in part a, a monoculture uh, of, of potatoes that were being used. Um, and that monoculture allowed for this one fungus to spread across, you know, the potato blight to spread across all of Ireland and basically starve people. The solution was going and finding other potatoes uh, back in the, in, the, in the new world that were resistant to it and breeding those features in. We had the same problem in corn, corn blight, right, et cetera. These, the, 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 when you lower diversity, basically you're lowering the number of potential solutions. Uh, and all it takes is one uh, ecologic change, the introduction of a fungus, oh. to wipe the whole thing out. But if you have diversity, you know, it's, you know this is not a political discussion. It's, it's, but but the same thing is true societally. Sure. It, that a certain I mean you don't want too much diversity because then it's chaos. Right. You know, but you need a certain amount of diversity to maintain the potential for solutions. Mm-hmm. But that notion is natural, right? It's not a political argument. It's just a natural world solution to uh, uh to uh, unexpected futures. Right, because you don't know what the future is going to bring, and so you know, if you all thought one way, then you might not have the solution. Mm -hmm. And and the UAP phenomenon is exactly a case in point. If we all think that there's absolutely no chance that UAPs are a non-human intelligence, then we'll forever just be looking at these things moving in the sky and just say, "Well, I don't know what they are, so therefore they don't exist." Right. And so when you have people like you and me and others who are presumably listening to this podcast, many of whom would say, well, I don't know what it is, but I know that it is. Right. Exactly. My mantra is knowing that it is, is the same thing as saying, not saying that I believe it's saying that I believe the data. Right. I don't believe in a conclusion. I know that the data is real. I can verify it to, you know, anybody's satisfaction that the data is real. 
how to interpret it is still an open question. And, and, and luckily I've seen, cause I've been pushing this a lot and a lot of people, you know, I, I guess have heard me talk now probably a few million and um, I, I, I see thankfully these words being repeated and refined and used against the skeptics. Cause I don't mind skeptics as long as they're not pathologically skeptical. Right. Um, right. Skepticism is healthy. It's asking questions. It's asking questions. It's peer review, et cetera. But as long as it's not, I mean, the problem is many of them, uh, you know, it's to them is disparaging. They'll use and overuse the term alien or little green men as a way to degrade uh, those who are, you know, think more open thinkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, that's just, that's just, to me, that's disqualifying them as, as reasonable skeptics. Well, I feel like people that aren't open-minded really it's, um, you know, there's a potential for the fundamentals of life to be rocked. And when that happens, it's just, you know, a house of cards for everything. And, um, they cling really hard to the things that they, they know because Mm -hmm. it keeps them safe. Um, to close the loop on the DNA thing that I'm curious about is the element of epigenetics and mm-hmm. how this connects then maybe with those other dimensions mm-hmm. because genetics there, the epigenetics is the expression, which is epi around. What is that? Yep. Is epi? Yep. Epi. Mm-hmm. So it's not the actual genetics. It's just the expression of the genetics that you're activating. So yeah. is there, is, could that correlate then with these other dimensions and this connectedness that we have? Yeah. I mean, another way to think about epigenetics is at least the first level of it is the proteins that are binding to the DNA. So they're the first translators. They're the first interpreters of what's in the DNA. The DNA is a scaffold that the proteins bind to because they recognize a code and they bind to that. And the code tells protein one, two, and three to bind here, here, and here. And that allows a machine to come together because of proximity. Mm. Um, and then that machine is, is interpreted. Basically, you can think of that machine as interpreting the underlying code. Um, and so, as you build out further and further levels of complexity, because this then builds neurons, the neurons go, go here and there, uh, and then that builds consciousness. And then consciousness somehow, let's say, is again, sitting in space-time. And I don't mean woo-woo, I mean, it truly is. You and I are just patterns of space-time. Um, and then, so yeah, at the end of the day, the DNA is architecting a structure that creates consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now it took, you know, for at least 4 billion years to happen, right? For it to do that. But DNA doesn't care. DNA doesn't think about time. DNA only thinks about survival, right? I mean, the, the, the rule of the selfish gene hypothesis is survive, you know, um, at all costs. Now, you know, from a consciousness standpoint, is at what point does consciousness intervene and say, is at all cost really the rule, right? You know, do I now intervene and say, okay, well, at all cost doesn't mean me against you. 
Right. You know, it means us. Right. And somehow us is uh, what takes us forward, you know, because the us principle actually is uh, a, a greater form of survival. Right. Right. It's, okay. a, it's kind of a we if, yeah. it, it becomes like a tribe. Yeah, exactly. You know? And then when does the concept of a tribe translate to a nation, to a people, to, you know, multiple peoples or multiple things. So, you, so I wonder sometimes when, let's say that these things that we're seeing are real. Um, notice I use the word if still. Sure. Um, you know, let's say that they are doing what they're doing and they're more advanced. Uh, clearly, they're interested in us. It is interested in us, whatever it is. They're not intervening, not stomping on us. Right. If they wanted to stop on us, clearly they could. All they would need to go is out to the asteroid belt and throw a big rock at us, and that'd be the end of us. Right. I mean, doesn't take much effort. You know, Musk could probably do it if he got mad at Twitter for not letting him buy them. Um, so uh that was like the that'd be an ultimate bond movie. Um and uh so you know, maybe their purpose is like our purpose with setting up national parks or nature preserves in Africa and South America. They're basically, they've set us up as a nature preserve. You know, I, I mean, frankly, I don't know why we're bothering, frankly, going to Mars. Why don't we just go, you know, 10 miles underground and build out caverns and put big lights up? There's lots of energy. There's lots of geothermal energy down there, right? I mean, do you believe in a hollow earth theory or- No, not theory? hollow earth, but- but you know, if there's if there are bases here, yeah. Well, they're clearly not on the surface; they're underground. You know, we see things coming and going from the water all the time. Great place to go. Humans don't aren't bothering down here. You know, they don't have the technology to live down here. But you don't have to go far enough down, right? To do things. You know, you could you could hollow out caverns and live underground, and maybe. Maybe what we're seeing is actually the di uh, you know some dinosaurs that became sufficiently intelligent, and they basically said, "Well, let's just get out of the way of all of these climate changes and just go underground because we're happier underground than whatever." I don't know. I mean, I'm just making it up as I go sure. along. Sure, I mean, there's plenty of those theories out there um, about I mean, all of that stuff. The surface of the planet. We're so frigging centric. We think that the surface of the planet is what everybody would want because we want it. Exactly. And then we look for us out there in the universe too. But what if it's not us? What if it's not just like this? Because there are so many brilliant people like yourself that talk about how fickle it is to even exist with yeah. slight changes in oxygen and all kinds of base elements that we have, we could be gone. One big solar flare is going to basically crush the planet because you know, it'll knock out all our electrical systems. I mean, <laughs> and they happen all the time. Solar flares happen all the time, right? Yeah. And just all it takes is like one really bad one and it'll be like an EMP pulse. And that would be, it would knock out all of our electrical systems, you know, talk about a disaster. You know, so, and maybe that's the reason why they basically said, well, you know, let's just go under underground or we can tell that there's going, I mean, a perfectly good reason for doing something like that would be, you you look 
into the nearby solar systems and you realize that there's a star within a few hundred light years that's about to go nova. Yeah. And that the radiation front from that nova would basically wipe out your civilization. Right. So how do you harden it? You go underground. Hmm. Once you're underground for a few generations, you're like, well, why do I need the surface? I'm perfectly happy down here. Let's let the surface be as it is. And we'll go look at it like a park and stroll around when we need to. I don't know. I'm just, again, making it you went up. to Antarctica, right? Yeah. Did you find any, any bases in Antarctica? No, I didn't find any bases there. I did read a book by, who's that guy? Hancock. Uh, Graham. Graham Hancock. I, I don't know why I picked it up. And on, on the way there, it was all about Antarctica. Oh. And the original, he, he basically was saying, you know, Atlantis was in Antarctica before some big global shift, you know, and, and he writes a great story. I don't know how much of it is true. Was it fingerprints of the gods or was it the next one? No, it was one. Um, I, I don't know which one it was, but it was yeah. the, the, the one kind of salient point that he continues to raise is that all cultures have um, a uh, um, history of, of a flood mm-hmm. and that soon after the flood, these people showed up. Um, and interestingly, and this is like everywhere from South America to, you know, uh, Middle East, et cetera, people who show up in the drawings and the carvings look the same and they're carrying like a purse. Right. Oh yeah. I've seen them. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Chichen Itza. I've been to a bunch of ancient sites, Peru. Yeah. There's all kinds of crazy symbols where they look like they're holding a, a bag, a bag. And so it's like, that's interesting. I, you know, again, it's, I don't think it concludes anything, but he weaves a beautiful story. Right. Um, and so I was reading that on the way across and while I was in Antarctica, uh, so I, no, I didn't see anything. I mean, the place is gorgeous. Really? Uh, oh yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Not just flat and barren. No, 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 no. Especially the yeah. peninsula. There are rock formations and things. And we took a helicopter around these towers of rock, uh, out in the middle. And I mean, just otherworldly, truly. And you were looking for UAPs or you were uh, just, no, just, uh, it had always been a, a bucket list kind of thing to, totally. to do. And so we, you know, we went on this, uh, it was a pretty high end thing. It had helicopters and a submarine on it. So I spent a fortune on it, but it was worth it. So cool. I have so, that sounds fascinating. I'm a, I'm very interested in Antarctica myself. Um, you were talking about, um, you know, this sort of come together all for one and the power of that. And then I can't help, but think about AI and, Mm -hmm. you know, the, future and the trajectory of AI and that how that may affect us and also whether or not that is the next phase. I mean, if our consciousness can be put in a forever body of some sort, then mm-hmm. is it really any different? I mean, we're essentially being upgraded in a way, or is there something special and unique to this biological human body that um, we essentially believe has you know, not, um, been made. Right. Well, I, you know, can AI be conscious in the same sense as I've just been discussing it about some level of complexity that instantiates something independent, at least, you know, probably not now, right. Mm-hmm. Or not in our more immediate future. 
can it replicate what we think is consciousness? Very likely. Mm -hmm. I mean, you already have seen the arguments about Google, Mm -hmm. right? And that thing that, you know, that program is, you know, I don't think it's conscious, but, you know, it, it was pretty remarkable. It was a far more interesting dinner conversation than I've had with even some of my professor friends from Harvard and MIT, right? I mean, much more open and, you know, interesting. I would love to have someone like that as a conversationalist, Mm. right? So now where does the transition happen for us? Well, again, I mean, I, I, I hate to boost his already immense ego, but not that he's listening to this. Elon Musk, you know, basically, I didn't say stole, but borrowed the concept of neural links from science fiction. This notion that you can interface and access compute abilities. Mm-hmm. We do it already. I mean, Wikipedia is like, a, you know, I, I, everybody's an expert if they can type in the search terms and get a Wikipedia concept. Imagine that being instantly available to your head. It's an upgrade. It's an upgrade. Imagine, you know, something which is recording your every moment so that when you say, where are my keys? The, you know, the, the compute in your head said, I see, I saw you leave it on the table downstairs and it flashes that image to you. Sure. Right. That's coming, right. It's coming one day. And so we've now transferred our memory, much of our capability of the memory to the computer, let's say in some near future. Um, It could record your life. So now, I mean, at 61, I can barely remember some of my former dogs. You know, I can remember them, but I can't remember the moment that I just had with two of my dogs in bed this morning, petting them and, you know, loving them. Um, But maybe I could recreate that. So I've now transferred memory, emotions, uh, and the, re- the recreation of those memories and moments to a computer, what's left? Hmm. Maybe just the decision processes, but then maybe we start to give the decision processes over to the computer. What should I do today? Well, here's the most efficient way to, to do all the stuff that you're doing. So we become smaller and smaller and smaller. And what we've handed over to an AI is larger. And so at what point do we decide as humans that we don't need that anymore? Because most of what we are is now in the computer. I would say that we, that doesn't have a soul, at least if a soul is true. But you know, maybe that's what we're seeing in these UAPs, because it's a natural extension of where we're going. Unless we create laws that stop it from happening, or there's some sort of a pogrom, pogrom uh, or a crusade against them, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And so we will transfer ourselves over. And then, unfortunately, people like Musk would live forever. <laughs> fortunately, people like you would. But fortunately, people like you would. Yes, that's, that's true. Yeah. Unless he turn us all into, into slave robots. But... Um, well, anyway, if you're a computer, the danger is control alt delete, you know? Control alt delete. That's also I mean, also a danger. I mean, I'm believe me, if Elon gets something that uh or somebody else, there's other people as well, just using him as an example, 
um, get something that allows for memory aids, I'll be all for it. If it doesn't, you know, if it, if it doesn't like destroy my brain in the process of upgrading, you know, and that I can't upgrade further at another point, I'll do, I'll do it. What about intelligence upgrades? Oh, sure. And in- increasing the data that you have on board. Right. So yeah. you're a fan of some of the potential of Neuralink. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you've heard me probably talk about where does creativity and insight come from and where are we accessing sure. these downloads that people get. Have you ever had that, by the way, with oh God, your work? Times. Is it, does it feel like what I've, I'm glad you said that because it seems like a lot of really brilliant people end up actually backing up into an idea that they had originally and then figuring out the, the essentially the math to it. And so mm-hmm. what are, what are some of those? Oh, there are many like books written about this and going back decades about how people have realized that they just get these ideas out of nowhere. I think that if we transfer ourselves to AI, mm-hmm. we'd lose that. Yeah, I'm implying that there's some woo-woo associated with where we get these ideas from. Right? I mean, that's not. I, I won't parse words. Uh, you know, you you could imagine that it's some sort of subconscious process that truly is just all mathematics, or there's something else going on. Because some of the ideas that I've had came from absolutely nowhere. There's no way I would have known what these things were before I thought the idea. Um, So it's like, okay, well, did somebody give it to me? Or, you know, I I don't like to think that there's a guardian angel or somebody out there who really cares about me personally. Um, Or is there something about the way you structure the question Mm -hmm. that, and there's a a saying, I can't remember if it's a a, a Zen or a Buddhist um, concept, that the perfect question is the flip side of the perfect answer. That if you structure the question in just the right way, the answer is obvious, huh. right? That the, the, the question almost presupposes the answer. And so maybe if the physics of the universe is, some people say it's an information physics, if the physics of the universe and it can traverse time, let's say, uh, and let's say that we don't understand enough about the universe to say that it can't, um, then, if your brain puts together a a conscious structure that is the question, it might be asking and, you know, it might be querying the universe for the answer. So it's your executive function of who we think we truly are that organizes the question in a way uh, in our brain that creates the query and Mm -hmm. it just takes time and the right moment Right. For all of that to have come together to the the answer comes and boom, it gets downloaded because it was already there. Yeah. Right. And it's not that anybody's giving it to you. It's you're giving it to you by creating. And again, it's all postulates. Where does it come from? What do you think? Speaking of questions, what do you think is the most important question that humans can ask? Are we alone? That to me is the most important question. If we're not alone, then somebody else might have answers to other, let's say, less or more immediate existential uh, questions, right? That, you know, what what can we do about this? What can we do about that? Or, you know, are there other dimensions? Are there, you know, you know, what is, you could list a thousand questions and, you know, if they would be willing to give us the answers, right? (laughs) And I... 
personally think that, frankly, we're not, I mean, I've said this before, I think we're just a bunch of angry, um, angry apes. I don't think we're ready for uh, some of the answers yet. And, you know, it's like you don't tell your children certain things until they're mature enough. And we have pretty much proven that we're still not mature enough yet. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, evolution, as I said before, doesn't care about time. DNA doesn't care about time. We're sort of the first level of civilization that was achieved out of competition, right? The tribe that was more competitive than the other and frankly, more aggressive. Um, and that frankly had, you know, narcissistic psychopathic leaders that were willing to unite mm. a continent, you know, at the expense of blood, uh, were the ones that succeeded. Mm. But as we're seeing played out in today's politics without getting political, um, that's not necessarily a survival trait for a species. Right. It's short-term win, long-term loss. Long-term loss. So is, is the long-term play for evolution the creation of a certain level of complexity that either realizes it needs to get rid of that aggression or there will be a collapse, uh, a rise, collapse, rise until the genetics is selected for that is an interesting study that was done. And I don't remember uh, who did it and whether it was validated or not, but it was shown that um, in women after wars, uh, that there were, it was more likely for the women's boy children to be homosexual. Interesting. Okay. Why? Okay. What? And the, and the postulate was, uh, that they would be less aggressive. And so there's kind of an encoding in the woman to fear of a problem. Mm -hmm. times of stress that, okay, we need to lower the aggression in the males because they're getting out of control. Okay. Now, is there an, it, does this happen? It, there is certainly other cases showing that the grandmother who is starved has a baby. And if it's a woman is epigenetically programmed to have a child who is more likely to gain weight. So there's this, it's, it's an epigenetic programming event. Yeah. You can, you can basically, it's, it, it, you know, there was a big thing between Darwinians and Lamarckians back in the day. Lamarck was a, um, his idea was that a giraffe's neck gets longer because it was reaching for it. Okay. And somehow that gets encoded into the DNA. Sure. Um, and, uh, and so the, uh, you know, that was discounted for, you know, almost a hundred or so years. And yet now we find these little subtle hints hmm. that in fact, Lamarck wasn't entirely wrong. So, you know, and, and aggression can be moderated apparently. And I, I don't know that being gay is, is the right answer, but maybe there are, it doesn't need to be gay, you know, just less aggressive children. Sure. Right. Um, and, or less likely to want to fight over the females. Hmm. Sorry to bring all that in, but it's, you know, that's, that's our history. Um, and so, you know, so there's a, there's sort of a self-regulating capacity, uh, in human society that is at least epigenetically flexible. 
um, and that we, you know, if we if we think of of us having an absolutely determined outcome, it's not quite right because our genes, right, epigenetically, are listening to the context, and so there's a little bit of flexibility built in there, and that just makes sense from a, you know, to build that in from an evolutionary standpoint, is to you know, you, remember you're you're trying to build in solutions. Um, and if the solution is to be a little bit more flexible to turn the meter up or down a little bit, you don't want it hard coded, you know, because hard coding of genes takes a long time to evolve in. But if you can hard code in a rheostat, then um, that listens to the environment and it mostly is going to come in through the eggs and less likely to come in through sperm because the eggs are more complex. Uh, you can basically say that the woman as a sensor is the one that provides the egg and the ability for the next generations, at least most immediate generations, to be modulated a little bit. I, I just find that fascinating. Anyway. Wow. If there was an if if we were to be able to use extraterrestrial intelligence and there was some communication had and we were able to learn something, as you said, they might have some solutions to our problems. Mm-hmm. What is the problem that you think needs the solution right now? I, I think, yeah, I think ag- ag- aggression leads to greed. Uh, aggression leads to overuse of resources, polluting the planet. Um, I don't think you want to get rid of aggression entirely because somewhere in aggression is also motivation, right? And, you know, I'm aggressive in my lab work. I want, you know, I, I want my people to, to win an argument around some science. Uh, so I think there's a little bit that's, that's good. So I think that somehow, how do we, how do we modulate that to me? Mm-hmm. That's the, to me, that's almost the most important because it, if you take any one of our problems, you can trace them back. One of the roots, at the very least, is is overaggression. Um, you know, and and another would be, you know, energy. Obviously, where's the? Is is there a better way to create energy than burning up something that lived two hundred million years ago? Well, it seemed like Nikola Tesla had some answers, right? Yeah. There's a great guy, you know, if, you, if anybody ever wants to look it up, there's a guy at the University of uh, Colorado, Boulder, uh, Garrett Modell, M-O-D-D-E-L. And uh, he's been looking into these devices uh, and he's a serious physicist. He's not one of these free energy, you know, nuts, spinning magnets and stuff. Um, obviously, I've looked into all of this. Um, so I'm a nut too. Uh, he has... Um, what he claims is an ability to, it looks like, uh, suck the energy of space-time out through a, 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 an asymmetric Casimir cavity. You got to go look it up. It's a the zero-point energy field. Okay. Um, and he seems to be creating power out of nothing. And he's created, he says, thousands of devices. Uh, and, um, you know, because they're all miniature. Yeah, maybe I've heard of that guy. And, and... And I just heard this the other day. Um, he's given it to NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is, you know, a government organization that validates all kinds of things. They're the ones who basically says, this is how much water weighs. The, you know, these are kind of the fundamental principles. 
And he's given these devices and, and it's claimed that they've reproduced the observation, that he's getting these minute amounts of power basically out of space-time. Now, what everybody's trying to do is prove or disprove whether that's an artifact or not. You know, What's is this guy's real... name again? Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T, mm-hmm. Model, M-O-D-D-E-L. Hmm. And he got a patent on, on this, which is unusual because a lot of these so-called free energy devices they um, they don't allow for patents because you know they people say they're junk. I don't know why they do that, but I mean, hmm. there is a blue jay that sees himself in the windows Seriously? of the house, and he keeps tapping on the windows. Oh, hello, hello. I don't know who, what visitor that is. This is believing that there is somehow a consciousness that can come through a bird and say hello to you. Say hello, exactly. Yeah. They, um, I looked it up. Apparently they are, it's males do it and there must be a, a female and uh, fledglings nearby. I do have a, 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 qu- a last question. Um, it's kind of a two-part. Is there information, technology, and being withheld from the general public about extraterrestrial and all things extraterrestrial. And if they were, why would they do that? Do I absolutely know for sure? Because I've seen it. No, I do not know that. Do I think that it's the case? Absolutely. Yes. And I have good reason to say that. Uh, that I can't talk about, but I have good reason to say it. Um, So my interest is obviously, and I've said this many times, um, any involvement that I want to have in this will eventually or should eventually lead to public disclosure, right? Now, whether I'm allowed to do that, should I ever get involved or be allowed to be involved? Nobody's asked me, so I'm not, you know. that would be my goal, because I think there's a virtuous cycle that can occur by letting the public in, because if there is anything to have been learned, they haven't learned much in the last 60 years. And um, or at least if they're letting it out, they're letting it out so slowly as to be imperceptible to the public. Um, But what I also know is that anything that is kept in silos which internal uh, special access programs are inevitably kept as silos. Mm -hmm. There's no ability to move forward quickly. (laughs) You know, I mean, I just know this in my lab. If I, if, if person X doesn't talk to person Y, they're both just, you know, they, they each have a piece that the other needs to create the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the question is how do you manage a, let's call it a, a public government slash private um, collaboration mm-hmm. that keeps the needs of everybody happy, where you know where the government is basically holding right now all the cards and probably a few aerospace companies, but not the aerospace companies at large, basically small programs within them. And if you started to understand how the government funds these programs, you understand how quickly things can go south <laughs> and become you know, become uh, disconnected from the original funding, because right? Because they keep them separate? 
to keep them separate. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, you know, and, and whether, you know, there's somebody sitting in an office laugh, listening to us laughing, saying, yeah, well, they're never going to know, forget them. They can talk all they want. Um, fine. We need yeah. to tap into the quantum and get the information. To, uh, yeah. Tap into something beyond, but I mean, um, I mean, I think that's what, uh, I mean, so the, the short answer is I think yes. Yeah. But even I'm not satisfied that the proof is there because I still have the standards of science that I want to apply to that, which means there needs to be reproducibility. I don't want somebody just to stand on a lectern and tell me that it is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I want to see it, but I also don't want to give the government permission to tell me to, to be interested in something or to believe something or not. I don't need their permission. You know, I don't need them to announce it. A lot of people do, but I don't need them to announce it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, as you know, I've seen stuff. I mean, I I saw a craft when I was a kid. End of story. Well, it was thirty feet away. How old were you? Twelve, twelve-ish. I can't remember when I, I was. When I was a paper boy, I was a paper boy for like four or five years. Um, so I know I saw something, and I know it wasn't human, right? So, okay. But I, that's anecdote to the rest of the world. Why to would me, they hide this stuff? Why, why, what, would be the, what would be the highest potential reason why information would be withheld from all of us? Well, I mean, people have talked about, you know, mass hysteria, et cetera. Um, maybe there's something about them that's really scary. You know, that, uh, you know, that to know that we are somebody else's property. Or, you know, I mean, heaven help that maybe we're farmed for something, you know, uh, that would be awful. That would be icky. Uh, I mean, it isn't as if we don't farm things, but um, just to know that you're not the top of the food chain uh, might not be a pleasant thing. But, you know, again, it's about what information do you give to a species like us that they wouldn't kill themselves with? Right. I mean, if you give people access to free energy is is, you know, even a small amount of free energy, only a step away to too much energy Hmm. that you basically blow up the planet. Literally, you know, I mean, the amount of energy sitting in one cubic centimeter of space time is enough to wreak havoc on the whole planet. I mean, it's just but it's all tightly bound in space. Is that called dark energy? No, it's a zero point field, the zero point energy field. Uh Um, uh, I mean, dark energy might be part of that. I don't know. Good question, actually. Um, But anyway, I mean, just what we understand about the zero point field where particles appear and disappear, sort of like I I think of it, and a physicist might yell at me for saying this. I think of it as the pressure in the balloon that keeps the universe expanding. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, because it's constantly expanding. It's constantly there, and it's it's that energy. But it, and this is what that guy Garrett Medell, mm-hmm. and everybody's been claiming that maybe it could happen. Hmm. But there are these notions of the you know the, the laws of thermodynamics that say it can't. Well, it's it's interesting that luckily even physicists call them laws. Sure, well, people can change laws. Yeah, it's true. You know, maybe, maybe it's just a law because it's just, it just, it, it, maybe it's a law because it works within our framework. Maybe our framework changes. 
So many thought provoking things. Um, thank you for sharing such great introspection and really just philosophizing and, you know, contemplating all of the potentialities out there. And I have no doubt that between you and your lab and all of those that are working on these, working on these, um, questions that we'll continue to find them in our lifetime. Maybe not all of them. Right. Maybe we have to die for that. But definitely. There's a a really good thing that I'm seeing, and maybe this is a good message to end on, is that the circle of individuals who's willing to talk about this stuff openly has dramatically expanded. Mm. The scientific colleagues that I have, I mean, I was just at two meetings in the last couple of weeks, who walk up to me and out of the blue say, Gary, I've heard about all this stuff going on and I know that you're interested in it. It's amazing. Can you tell me more? Those same colleagues three years ago, their eyes would have glazed over or they would have dismissed it. So, you know, I I think there has been a a sea change. and I I find that hopeful. Absolutely. Uh, And then thanks for being brave enough to uh, go ahead and step outside the box and be willing to talk about it with me and other people and just within your work. Uh, It's really cool. And we're going to we're going to get answers because of people like you. Great. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, You're Gary. Welcome. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.